Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24 for Luke's closing remarks of his entire gospel. We have spent nearly two years going verse by verse through Luke's gospel. And we come to what possibly is the last sermon. I might be able to squeeze one more dropout here in Luke 24. We average about four messages per chapter when we're in the Gospels. And so this morning we are going to take a look at uh, really the closing remarks there on uh, Easter Resurrection Sunday evening. Before we do that, we'll ask the Lord for his blessing. Heavenly Father, thank you for your Holy Spirit who remains with us, whom you sent to reside in our hearts, to give us understanding not only of the scriptures, but of Jesus, for the scriptures testify of a living person, and it's the living person whom we need to see. And so we thank you, Father God, for your great love. Now open the eyes of our understanding, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's some good news that we receive in this life that's just very, very hard to believe. Recently, I caught a repeat of the airing of an episode, NBC's Dateline special, that documents the now famous story of a mix-up of two Christian young ladies, women involved in a fatal car crash last 2008. Most of you have heard about it. I have referenced it before. Why don't we put up this slide? In a very strange twist of fate, these two Christian young ladies attending a Christian university were in the same van. They have striking similarities. And this van was hit head-on by a semi One girl was dead at the scene, and one girl seriously injured. With the chaos that came with that horrendous scene, the wrong purses went with the wrong girls. The dead girl, Laura, was ID'd as Whitney, and the live girl, Whitney, was ID'd as Laura. Because of the incredible similarities and because there was head trauma involved, the mix-up lived on for five weeks. Whitney's parents grieved the loss of their daughter, and Laura's parents kept a bedside vigil for five weeks for their daughter. Then one day... Little subtle changes and little subtle insights have been becoming more and more disturbing. And then one day, as you remember how the story goes, the phone call comes to Whitney's parents. Now in five weeks of mourning, having attended their daughter's funeral, having buried a casket with her remains in them, the plot that said her name on it, a signed death certificate that they saw five weeks later, they get a phone call that says, Whitney may be alive. Well, if the first phone call was hard to believe that your teenager or your young 20-year-old was dead, how much more hard to believe that now She may be alive. Was it a cruel prank? They just said they were in utter disbelief, the mom and the dad talking there on camera. Confusion, anger. Nevertheless, they were asked to get the dental records and to go to the hospital to identify if this girl in the bed was indeed their daughter, Whitney. They did, and she said, the mom said, We did it in disbelief. We were giddy, but we were crazy. We were like, okay, let's do this out of duty because she can't possibly be alive. And so they drove up to the hospital out of duty. They didn't let themselves believe it because they said it was too good to be true. We knew our daughter 
was dead. Well, they walked into the hospital room. They saw her, they touched her, and indeed, their daughter Whitney was alive. Of course, that had some bad news for the other parents as well. Uh, If you get a chance to get the book or view the uh, documentary, do so, because they are both devout, born-again Christian families. It is the most, for lack of a better term, inspiring and anointed conversation I have ever witnessed. They give glory to Christ, the way they respond. It is amazing. But here in Luke 24, thank you, Mikey, uh, it's, a re- it's Resurrection Sunday, and there's some stunning reports, some news about a dead person who was really dead and now is alive. And they're having trouble, the disciples are, leaving their world of devastation where their hopes and their dreams have been dashed, they're grieved, they're depressed, confused, and afraid, then they get the call. He's not actually dead. Jesus is alive. Well, you know, it's not like in Princess Bride, where Miracle Max says of Wesley, who's obviously dead, he brings him in to Miracle Max, you know, he wants him Restored, And he says, I got good news for you. Your friend here is just mostly dead. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Jesus was all dead. All the way dead. He breathed his last. He died the way a human being dies. Though he was equal to God in every way. He laid that aside. And the scriptures say he dismissed his spirit He yielded. The King James has it. He gave up the ghost. In other words, he, being God, willed himself to die. And uh, he did that he did. And now they're hearing this one whom they seen crucified, dead, and buried uh, is said reportedly to be alive. Well, how can this be? Um, We saw the crucifixion, they're thinking. We know where the body lay. This is too good to be true. Wouldn't that be nice? Giddy, like, wow. And then this would be too incredible. But Thomas said what they pretty much were all feeling. Unless I see for myself and touch those scars with these hands, I just can't buy it at all. Well, they're going to get the chance to do that in this morning's text for our consideration here in Luke 24. The big reveal happens here in the last paragraphs of Luke's gospel. They've heard the good news from the ladies, the garden tomb, the angels said he's not here. Why are you looking for somebody dead in a, why are you looking for somebody alive rather in the place of death? He is risen just like he told you. And from Peter and now two disciples on the Emmaus Road, now they're all together and there's going to be no more questions after the next paragraph that we read. So we are picking up where we left off at verse 36. As I said, early morning dawn is now over with the ladies in the empty tomb, stories of angels, and then later afternoon, as we saw last week, the two disciples on the Emmaus Road have walked and talked and sat at dinner table with the risen Lord. And um, now these two disciples have got up from the table and have hightailed it to back to Jerusalem, back to tell the 11 others and the apostles and everybody else gathered together what they just saw. Verse 36. While they were still talking about this, that is, the two guys from Emmaus are telling their testimony, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled? And why did doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I, myself. It's me. Touch me and see, a ghost doesn't have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? 
they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, prophets, and the Psalms in the Old Testament. He's saying, look, I mean, this was no surprise. This wasn't something that started off really good, but, oh, the bad guys got in there. He said, no, this is all of our plan. This is God's plan. It's predestined to go this way. 45. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand those scriptures. He told them, this is what was written. The Christ would suffer and rise from the dead. And on the third day, and on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these these things, he tells them. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. We're going to consider these words now this morning quite a lot to ponder, really. Jesus' resurrection is key to everything in Christianity and in the Bible. Because Jesus rises from the dead, prophecies are fulfilled. His claims of being God himself are substantiated. He made some great claims And because he rises from the death, then we know everything he claimed was true. If he he died and then was no more, then we'd have to question the things he was teaching. The resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ means a lot of things. It means death is defeated. Sins have been paid for. The devil's been overthrown and a way has been made for us to live forever. It is really the most important doctrine of the Christian faith. Let's gather our thoughts together around three ideas here this morning that I see in our text. One, you're taking notes, invaded by peace. Two, encouraged by proof. And three, clothed with power. So first of all, number one, invaded by peace. Here's the paraphrase. That resurrection Sunday evening, the apostles and other disciples were hiding out, the doors and windows barred shut because they were afraid of the Jewish authorities. While the, guys, <coughs> excuse me, while the guys from Emmaus were in the middle of their breathtaking testimony, Jesus just appears out of nowhere, boom, standing right there in the midst of them. He opened his mouth and said, peace. Now, I want to talk to you about this and why I use the term invaded by peace. This is really kind of what he does. He had told them, heads up, wherever two or more are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst. And this is quite a literal fulfillment of those words he spoke to them while he was alive. I mean, he has to be more than a man on just this one claim, though there are hundreds of them just like this. What man could say, hey, wherever in the world two people get together to talk about me and I'm the center of it, I'm there. So he's just saying, this is what I meant by that. He shows up, they're together, two or three are gathered together. Jesus is the focus and he says, boom, here I am in the midst. That's exactly what's going on. But, you know, even though they had scriptures and clearly he had said that he would rise from the dead, Um, They were not expecting him, and therefore they are uh, startled. The word used in the Greek is phobos, where we get the word phobia. They were fearful of the Jewish authorities because they were out for blood. Man, they had just uh, had Jesus put to death, and they were out for any of the followers. Do you remember that they wanted to kill Lazarus as well? Why did they want to kill poor Lazarus? I mean, he just got done with that whole dead thing. You know, <laughs> they said, you want, <laughs> we're going to kill you again. <laughs> and why did they want to do that? They said, because many were putting their faith in Christ because of Lazarus' testimony. So they thought, well, let's do away with him. And so the, the poor guys, they're behind doors. They've locked everything. They're upset. It's night. Now, why... This word peace, I want to talk to you, point one, about peace. It was necessary 
to have a word of peace considering that situation, to buffer the abrupt appearance. You know, they're exhausted. They're emotionally raw. It's night. You know what? They don't have lights on in every room, folks. They have a little candle flickering. There are dark shadows and areas in the house that aren't totally illuminated. It's the perfect atmosphere for one of those heart attack scares, you know? Now, some people like to do that to people. They're usually in junior high or high school. (laughs) Now, back in the day, let me tell a story about Peter or PJ. Uh, He loves to do this to people. Just appear out of nowhere and boom. You know, Jesus did that, but not on purpose. Uh, He wasn't looking forward to scaring them, but to uh, blessing them. Well, you know, Peter, you know, he would, and he does it to, guess who? Amanda, our worship leader. They have this thing going back and forth. And they'll just, it works during the daytime. Peter will just suddenly, they're just talking. It's daylight. They're sitting in the living room. And Peter will just explode, like out of nowhere. Boom! And, and Amanda goes, oh, you got me again, you know, because she, she jumps four feet. Well, when it's dark and it's not expecting, that's, it works a lot better. So one time, <laughs> one time I open the door. It's dark in the house. We're coming in. Amanda's in tow. And I round the corner. And on the kitchen counter, in between the cupboards, PJ's standing like this. <laughs> At first, just to see him, for me, it was like, (gasps) you know, and he goes, because I know poor Amanda, like a little mouse in a snake's cage, you know, coming around the corner, and he jumps on her, like out of nowhere, that poor thing, I just felt, if if something would have happened to Amanda, I would have been an accomplice, I didn't warn her, you know, the... These guys were really afraid. They were talking in hushed tones. It's dark. It's quiet. The guy's like, and then we saw Jesus, and then boom, there he is. Well, no wonder, you know, uh, no wonder they were startled, and no wonder he said peace. The first word's like peace, peace. Don't panic. They had barricaded themselves back there. Even the word in the Greek is not to shut the door. It's to put something in front of the door to stop somebody from getting in. And so Jesus brings peace just to help them get over the abruptness of his entry and also in a much more profound way to to help them be reassured in the face of their recent failure. What do I mean by that? Well, remember the last time they saw Jesus physically? It was an absolute mess, you know? They were more like the seven dwarves than the 12 disciples. You know, sleepy, dopey, bashful. Sleepy. Guys falling to sleep on each other. The Lord's like, hey, this is my hour. Guys, could you just hang with me one hour? And they're snoring and falling over each other. You know, then uh, dopey. Sorry, Peter. (laughs) the Apostle Peter, uh, he takes out his sword and he's trying to protect Jesus from doing something that was foreordained from the foundation of the world that Jesus told him a hundred times, I got to go do this. And he's trying to stop it. And he takes out his sword and cuts off somebody's ear, you know, and then there's bashful, all of them. And here's the quote from Mark 14, verse 50. Then they all deserted him and left him in the garden alone. Their last encounter, you know, his first word was peace, but their first thought was awkward. (laughs) You know, here's Jesus. Oh, hi, Lord. (laughs) Fancy meeting you here. (laughs) Oh, yeah, about that last time we were together. Yeah, so he says, grace, peace, it's cool. I'm not mad. He doesn't come into the situation saying, um, wake up, sleepyheads. (laughs) Here I am, and uh, boy, guys, am I really disappointed. You mean to tell me after hanging out with the Son of God for three years, you guys couldn't pray with me for an hour? You guys leave me hanging with the soldiers all around me when I need you the most? You know, Peter, really, a junior high-aged girl, servant girl, at a fire? 
You can't even tell her about me. No, he doesn't do any of that because love covers a multitude of sins. He just paid for all their sins. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. He didn't come to give you a list of all the places you fall short. He came to die for that list of all the places that you fall short. We need to get that through our heads. He doesn't come in to call him on the carpet, but he comes in to call him into a closer walk with him. And because of his death on their behalf, that is a huge possibility and potential. So instead of, um, you know, letting them have it, he gives them his love. Love covers a multitude of sins. He blots out our moral failures. He remembers our sins no more. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. He forgives and he forgets. When you see the Lord, you may say, you know, Lord, what do you think was the worst thing I ever did in life? And he'll say, my child, I can't remember. He has willed himself to forget the sins of his people that he himself paid for on the cross. He says, I will myself to remember your sins no more. So he walks into the room. Everybody's like, oh, no. And he goes, no, peace, man. It's okay. Our relationship is not based on your performance. It's based on my performance. Get that through your head so that you can enjoy your fellowship with God and walk with him in love. It's not based on you. You have a savior who died for you and did what you could never do. Or he would walk in and say, you guys got to step up the game. He doesn't need to say that because he wiped the slate clean for them. Another good word for you and me, because unfortunately we do the same thing. We fall away. We break promises and vows. We, leave, we live, rather, beneath our own ideals, let alone God's. But Jesus comes to us in peace. Romans 5 says, Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, not by being good, but by trusting him, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. Stand in this peace. <clears throat> Friend, listen, have this peace in every troubled moment of your life, in painful loss, in a, when you feel powerless in a situation, you can have that peace. When you're in the grip of a temptation, you can have that peace. When, though, when you cannot fix what is broken in the hearts of people you love, you can still have peace. This peace passes understanding. In other words, it doesn't make sense. I was talking to, um, we're going to pray for Japan uh, later, but I was talking to, on my way to Japan, on one of the flights many years ago, I was talking to a Japanese psychologist, and of all the things I said about the Lord, he interrupted me in the middle of the conversation with a very loud voice when I was talking about the peace of God that we can have in our hearts. And as I talked about that peace, he interrupts me, stops, and says, I want that peace. And I said, that's easy to get. All you have to do is pray for it, and he'll give it to you. And we did, as far as I know, that he's walking in that peace today. The peace of God, a clean conscience Knowing that everything's going to work out for good. That God loves you and he accepts you as you are. And he's with you and for you and not out to get you. Boy, that's the root and foundation of peace. So just know Jesus shows up to you today. He says, peace to you. Let each day start with that greeting and end with that greeting, live in between the reality of that peace because it's yours, whether you're going to grasp it in this life or not. And I hope you do because that's the whole glory of the gospel. Second point, now they've been invaded by peace. Now they're encouraged by proof. Here's my paraphrase. After Jesus appears, the disciples were freaked out. Well, they were. They thought they were seeing a ghost. So Jesus says, guys, why are you doubting that it's really me? Check out my scars. Look at my hands and feet. Take a look at my side where I was pierced. It's really me. 
You can touch if you'd like. A ghost doesn't have skin and bones like I do. So he shows them. But though they had great joy, they were still sort of pinching themselves, trying to take it in. So Jesus takes it a little further. Got anything to eat? They hand him a piece of broiled fish. And he took a bite, chewed it, and swallowed it right in front of them. Guys, it's me. Now, that's just awesome. And it's awesome because we're going to get to eat in heaven, apparently. And not gain any weight. That's so great. Generally speaking, so Jesus is a revealer, not a concealer. He wants them to be rid of their doubts. Um, John 8, 12. I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Psalm 32, 8. I will instruct you and I will teach you. I will show you the way you should go. I'll counsel you. Matthew 7, 7. Ask me, and I'll give it to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be open. Uh, Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light unto my path. Listen, Jesus comes to them wanting to reveal himself and the truth so that they won't be anxious and doubting and indecisive like that. And so he's going to bring them proof. You know, God... (laughs) The way I really, I I walked out of the disco, as I told you many times in 1979, a born-again Christian with no human agency, just the Spirit of God. What started that, and what I credit, really how I come to find the Lord, months before that, my father had an open Bible, and he was preaching the gospel at the dinner table. I, I went to my room, and I laid on my bed, and I said, God, if you're real, Reveal yourself to me. I, 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 I don't even believe in you, but I'm asking, if you're real, show yourself to me. That is a prayer that will always be answered 100% of the time because God wants to say, come closer, touch. you got a problem? Thomas, unless I touch you, Thomas, come here. Come on, touch. He didn't say, no, you have to come by faith, Thomas, or else. Well, true, we all have to come by faith, but here you see God's heart to do everything divinely possible for you to get rid of your doubts. Ask him in all your stumbling. Reveal this to me. I'm stumbled here. Shine the light, and that's his nature. The other day, uh, we were at Togo's. Love that place. It's a certain sandwich I could recommend. It's the Friday special. I've been talking to a kid there. I'm afraid to use his name because I invite him every week. Let's call him Togo. (laughs) (laughs) Or Frodo. Well, anyway, Mr. Togo. I've been talking to him. He said, hey, man, where have you been? I haven't seen you for a while. I go, oh, you noticed. And he said, yeah, yeah, I like when you guys come in. I said, well, you know, um, did you check out the website? He goes, I love that website. Yeah, checked it out. And he said, I don't believe in any of that stuff, though. I don't know. All of that stuff, no. And I said, right in front of everybody at the counter, I said, yeah, terrible. Going to heaven, escaping hell, living forever, the love of God. I don't blame you. (laughs) I can see your point. And he just laughed. He goes, that's your job, huh? That's what you do. You get paid for that, huh? I go, yeah, I do, sort of. I said on the way out, he was having his break. But you're not going to have a break if I'm still in the restaurant. (laughs) So I go over and I saw a little bit of his foot and leg. So I knew, oh, he's right behind this little thing. And I poke my head and I go, hi. And he says, yeah, I'm on break. I go, hey, listen, what do you got to lose to just say to God, hey, God, if you're real, let me know. Why don't you just say that? He goes, I guess there's no harm in doing that. I go, yo, you're right. And I walked away and went, yes. His goose is so cooked. Oh, my word. That. Done. He's going to ask God. God, are you there? Show yourself to me. And God's going to go, no, I don't want to. What? God is going to open his eyes. And if he's willing to hear, God will show himself. 
And, and that's the nature. And so he starts proving it to them, you know. He starts proving it to them. He shows them, here, touch, look. He goes, you still don't believe it? Come on, man. Give me, you got something to eat? Look, I'll show you. A ghost doesn't have a body like this, you know? So he says, give me a piece of fish. He takes the fish. He puts it in his mouth. Look, I'm eating. You know, I'm not. By the way, there's no such thing as a ghost. Humans who depart are on a one-way ticket, either north or south. And when they get there, they stay there. There's not one shred of biblical evidence that any departed spirit returned. There are angels whom we cannot see and demon spirits that we cannot see. But not one human being comes back after already departing. That's the word, depart. To depart means to depart. They don't come back here. They're not giving you signs They're not putting things in your path. They're not encouraging you. They cannot hear you necessarily. They do not talk to you biblically. Now, if you want to argue with me, then we'll have to uh, have a different kind of argument. Well, that I'm off on a tangent. Let me get back to the Bible. (laughs) Resurrection chapter, little condensed. Jesus has a body that is now alive. And was his body before? Because it has scars. It tells us a lot about what we will be looking forward to. So let me read out of the resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. Excuse me. All right, but tell me this. Paul is talking to the Corinthians who are all messed up. They don't believe in the resurrection body anymore. But tell me this, you Corinthians, since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying there's no resurrection? No life after death. Come on. Now, some may ask, how will the dead bodies be raised and come back to life? What kind of bodies will they have? Well, that's not a very smart question. When you put a seed into the ground, it doesn't grow into a plant unless it dies first. And what you put in the ground It's not the plant that will grow, but only a seed of weed or something that you're planting. Then God gives it a new body he wants it to have. That's the way it'll be with us. Our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when we die, but they will be raised to live forever. What I am saying, dear brothers and sisters, is that our physical bodies can't enter heaven as they are today. They must be changed. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. In that day, when Jesus comes, the saying will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And so, Jesus here wants to, sh- to model, really to us all, that our bodies will rise and that Number one, we will be, those bodies will be who we were. One thing the Bible teaches for the life in the hereafter, you are who you were. You will never for all eternity cease to be you. You will be a perfected model if you're a born-again Christian. But you will always be you. You do not morph into anything else. There's no conglomeration up there. You are you. Always, And the body that you will have will be glorified body that you now have. It will be changed and perfected. He had the body that he had in life. Only there are some differences there. So Paul says, he says, look, think of it this way. As a tulip bulb goes in the ground, dies, is buried, up comes something very different. Yet it's a tulip. They're both things. If you hold up a a bulb and a tulip, you're going to get... A tulip, but look at the difference between what goes in the ground and what comes up. The Bible teaches that's it. It goes in in dishonor and in weakness and vulnerable to decay. It comes up just the opposite. So much so that you you almost can't recognize it. And that's the why, reason why they couldn't recognize Jesus. Uh, this is my theory why they can't recognize his new body, even though it's got glorified scars. Because he's perfected. There's no flaw on that face anymore. The Bible says that he wasn't a good-looking man, as we regard good-looking. 
before. But man, I'll tell you what, there are no crooked noses, no teeth ajar, no, no cleft ears, nothing. I'm sorry. Perfected. And perhaps that's the reason why. It goes in the ground looking, whoa, look at that bulb. I mean, I've got some illustrations here for you to wake a few of you up, look a little dazed. <laughs> that is a redwood tree that grows 360 feet tall. And tons and tons and tons of lumber are in that sea. Next slide. From that seed, Paul says, let me assure you, what goes in the ground, very insignificant. What comes up is a wow. They are the same. A redwood seed, it produces this. The next picture. Isn't that hideous? Well, when it goes into the ground and dies, look what comes up. Yeah, I heard that hum. I think you're getting it. (laughs) Paul says, sown in weakness, in decay, in sadness, sown in an unattractive package by the time most of us get there. Up, splendor, glory, honor, incapable of corruption, perfected. Next slide. Sown in weakness. Next slide. Sown in dishonor. Next slide. Raised. Miraculously. John says, you know what we are going to be? We don't really know clearly. I'm quoting 1 John chapter 3. But we know one thing, that when we see him, we will be like him. For we shall see him as he is. In fact, Paul tells the Philippians, thank you, in chapter 3. It's awesome. He says, The Lord Jesus Christ, by his matchless power, will transform our lowly bodies that they will be like his glorious body. Did you hear that? The same body Jesus gets, we will get. Now, there are a couple little points here. What can we know about that body? Not a whole lot, but number one, it has human appearance. He walks along a road. He listens to conversations intelligently. He has memory. Of before. He listens and converses intelligently. He speaks. He eats. Number two, the the New Testament says our body isn't bound by the physical anymore. He can appear and disappear at will. He's able to be where he wants to be. He transports himself where he wants to be. And it isn't subject our new body to physical boundaries anymore, i.e. the locked doors. Now, when we die, believers enter into his presence, 2 Corinthians 5.8, and when Christ comes, then the bodies that are sleeping, we never sleep in death. Whenever the euphemism for death is used, sleep, it's used for your body in the grave because that will not rise and be reunited with you until the second coming or the rapture. That is when we will be reunited. In the meantime, we have a temporary spiritual body that uh, works. But in the end, when Christ appears, that's when the body, your body, no matter what it looked like going in, will come up. And in the same vastness of difference, of glory and honor, it shall be the same for you and me. Well, I've left myself no time For point three, so I just have to uh, sum it up. Point three, we've been encouraged now by physical proof and scriptural proof. He says he opens up the Old Testament to them and says, hey, this is God's idea and not yours. Last point, power, clothed in power. Here's the paraphrase, and then I'll make a couple comments and we'll be done. I want you to take this message of the gospel to the world. Tell everyone how to repent and have their sins forgiven. 
But first I have something for you, a gift from heaven. Wait here until you have been clothed with power from on high. Now, the, that new resurrection life happens when we come to know the Lord. It starts in this life. Now, in John 20, in this, before he gives them a call to go out and reach the world with the gospel, he does something that Luke leaves out. He breathes on them, and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. And he blows, he breathes on them. It's very reminiscent of Genesis chapter 2, where the Lord, he is the Lord, and by the Lord we were created. He created us and then blew into us the breath of life and we became living spirits. And so now, because of Genesis 3, when that spirit died, he says, the day you disconnect from me and join ranks with the evil one, you cross the line, you eat the fruit, you die. The spirit, body, soul, and spirit, which we had, the spirit died. And God's whole gospel plan is a way to breathe back that spirit that we might once again be eternal beings and so that was the plan of the gospel now that the sins are paid for now that our our debt has been uh, paid in full he's able to come to them and say be alive now and he breathes on them and now that which we lost in genesis 3 when you come to the lord jesus christ in a sense he breathes on anybody who comes to him he breathes life and you become alive. And that, my friend, is the definition of being a Christian. Not suddenly there's a list of things. Well, I don't do this and I do do this. That's not what being a Christian is. Being a Christian isn't being a good person. Good people don't go to heaven. Saved people go to heaven. Bad people don't go to hell. Unsaved people go to hell. The Bible says we're all bad. What makes me a Christian is that Jesus breathed on me in that bar 31 years ago. Out of nowhere, breathed life on the sidewalk. I was this Ross that you know. Not even looking for him. He opened my eyes, came into my heart, made me alive. Now suddenly I'm, I'm changing, not because I think, oh, I need to be a good person. No, because the new life in me is different than the old life in me. Being a Christian is about having this new sap flow up into your mind and your heart. You're feeling different things. I had somebody come to me, a, 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 a new person in the Lord, saying, I can't cuss anymore. I go to cuss and it just, it just stops. I never cared about cussing. I didn't even know how much I cussed. And now suddenly I go to cuss and it just stops. What is that? I thought, it's the Holy Spirit. It's not because you got somebody who said, hey, you know, you need to be a Christian. You need to stop cussing. No. How can anybody stop cussing when you've been cussing all your life? You can't. But if somebody gets a hold of you and breathes on you this new life, this new person inside of you who does not cuss, now suddenly you've got this new life. Let me give you an example that happened Wednesday night. I'm leaving the service. I'm in the lobby, and somebody introduced me to her friend who's present here this morning, both of them. And she came up to me with tears, and she said, I'm a lost soul. I need to be saved. And I said, well, you come to the right place, I think. And I said, let me tell you a little bit about Jesus. And she's finishing my sentences. Well, Jesus, da, 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 she finishes them. I said, so you get it? She goes, I get it. I'm lost. I'm tired. She's crying. I, I need God. I just, in the service, I was feeling this thing in me. I said, let me get a few girls over here. So I got a few girls, Renee, Nina, Hannah. And I called them over, and we sat in the corner Wednesday night. And I said, Nina, why don't you give a little bit of your testimony? She started talking a very, like, wow, testimony. And I saw with my own eyes this girl who said, I'm a lost soul. She stood to her feet while she was talking and just, they, they met in midair and they were sobbing and crying. The same exact testimony that this girl had gone through as a child 
Nina was sharing the exact same situation. I saw Jesus breathing through Nina's words of testimony into this girl's heart and just raise her out of her seat and the two collide and they're hugging and sobbing. They haven't even finished three sentences together. And what does she say? She says, I feel that thing again. It's tingling inside of me. And I'll say, you know what that is? It's called coming to life. It's called waking up. It's called being born again. That is the the definition of what it means to be a Christian, my friend. And if you don't have it, it doesn't have to be quite as dramatic. You don't have something like that, my friend, on your knees before the living God and say, "Am, am I born again? Jesus said, you'll never get to heaven unless you're born again. John chapter 3. He, he breathes on you. Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia. C.S. Lewis made sure he fit that in there. They go to the palace and everybody's under a curse and they're stone statues. And Aslan goes. And up from the. Sorry. <laughs> Those parts always embarrass my kids. I hear about it when I get home. Dad, please. And up from the ground. Life. From concrete. To flesh and blood, breathing. That's the gospel, my friend. He breathes on us. Gives us power. He doesn't say, go change the world in your own strength. He says, now that I'm in you, giving you power that you could never do apart unless I was in you. Now you can love your wife as Christ loves the church. Now you can die to that incredible besetting sin. Now you can forgive that person who did the unspeakable to you because God is with you, in you, and you're alive in those ways, and now you have the power and the ability to change. Now you can because of his breath of life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the living word that this is just a a living life-giving, spiritual relationship with the God who loves us and transforms us. Not a dead, lifeless, legalistic religion, but a wonderful relationship, friendship. Father, son, father, daughter, brother in Christ. Just this wonderful, loving touch upon our souls that makes us alive. We thank you, Lord, and commit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand for the closing song. What a privilege it is to have that spirit in us, to be able to, in his name, see him do that through us to others and see them come to life. That's a lot more fun than a duty to evangelize. (laughs) But to see God bring somebody who is dead into life, that's awesome. I found this Aslan's Breath poem. It's like six lines. Breathe on me, great king. Breathe courage into my fears. Breathe your healing on my wounds. Breathe on my heart your peace. Breathe in my mind your thoughts. Breathe on my body your strength. Breathe yourself into my soul. Your breath makes me alive. Breathe your life into me and make me stand once again. There's somebody here, you've never experienced that. You've never yielded your life to the God who made you and loved you and loves you so much. And you'd like to uh, come to know him in a personal way. Usually that starts with something called the sinner's prayer. And we like to pray that prayer with you out loud. We don't call you up here or anything. But we'll make it official. Say the prayer with you. You repeat after me. We all pray the prayer. And that's the beginning. And it'll begin the process of breathing life into you and giving you life that never ends. Life that keeps going even when your body dies. And so we'll bow our heads, close our eyes, see if there's anybody here today longing for that kind of renewal in life, transformation. If you're here this morning, you want to become a Christian and give your heart to Jesus Christ then just slip your hand up nice and high and say, I'd like to make that official and be a 
walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We've got one hand. Anybody else holding out? Okay. Thank you. Right. And the second hand. All right. We're going to pray. And, you know, what's more important than a raised hand is a believing heart. So believe it in your heart, the Bible says, and you will be saved. Dear Heavenly Father, I am a sinner. I need your help. I'm a lost soul without you. Today I come to you. Open my heart to you. I repent of my sins. Breathe on me. Come into my heart. Give me life. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And so for the Christians now, Father, I just pray that we take the word that you've spoken and put it into practice. Hide it in our hearts that we might not sin against you. Thank you for this wonderful opportunity to consider thoughts that are so vastly beyond us, but our hope, our hope and the anchor of our soul, eternal life, to live with God forever. Wonderful thing, Father, help us to be found in you on that great day. Jesus' name. And Father God, we want to lift Japan to you and the countless of broken lives there. We just, Lord, pour out your spirit and use this time for the people of Japan who 99.9% of them don't know you, that they might call upon the name of the Lord and through this tragedy that many people would be saved. We thank you, Lord, for your wonderful love for the Japanese, and we pray that you would encourage missionaries there to preach with great boldness and that you would bring your favor there and allow people to hear the gospel and be saved. Jesus' wonderful name, we pray for them. Amen. God bless you all. We'll see you Wednesday or next Sunday. God bless.